Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here, even on this uh, spring forward uh, Sunday morning. Um, DC just started last week, but it feels like he's already been here for like like five years. Um, and so I'm such a natural and so grateful to have him and his family um, be a part of our community. Um, we have uh, reached the end of our series through the names of God. If you've been with us uh, the past few months, uh, you know, we've looked at a lot of the different names through which God reveals himself to us in scripture. Uh, and as I mentioned in week one, one of the reasons we decided to do this series was because we realized that for so many of us, God is still just an idea. God is a, a construct in our minds. You know, we know a lot about God, but we don't really know God. Right? In the, in the same way that, you know, when you meet somebody for the first time, you usually start with their name. Um, you know, we, we really felt like this would be such an important way to start the new year uh, because we felt like the names, understanding the names of God would allow us to draw closer to who God is, uh, draw us into a deeper, more intimate relationship with Him. Uh, just to review, if you've been with us in week one, we looked at the name Elohim, Creator God who brings beauty out of chaos. Uh, and then we looked at El Shaddai, God Almighty. And then Adonai, our Lord and Master, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides, Elkanah, jealous God, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner, uh, my wife's favorite, Jehovah Mkadesh, uh, the Lord who sanctifies. And then last week, uh, we looked at uh, Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. Okay, and if you missed any of these names or any of these sermons, I would definitely go back and take a listen on our podcast uh, because each of these names kind of tells us something really unique about who God is. And my guess is that probably there, there's going to be like one or two names that specifically speak to you uh, in this particular season of your life. And um, I'm personally really glad that we have an opportunity to end this series today with the name we're looking at today. And it's actually my personal favorite of all the names of God we've looked at in this series. And it's the name Elroy. Okay, let's say that together. Elroy. Okay, and, and it means the God who sees me. The God who sees me. Okay, uh, if you um, have your Bibles or if you want on your app, if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 16, uh, we're going to be reading the entire chapter, Genesis 16. And if you can choose your translation, um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Genesis 16, this is the reading of God's word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. 
And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had borne. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Amen. Amen. Um, we were actually going to do this name last Sunday, but we had all our children in the service. We felt like it was a little rated R for them, so we, we pushed this a week. But I'm actually really glad this is the one we're closing on. This story is the only time in Scripture we see this name Elroy. And it's actually the first time a human being gets to name God. It's the first time. And I want you to think about how profound that is. Of all people, Hagar, a woman, a single mom, an Egyptian slave, is the first person who gets to name God. If that doesn't tell you all you need to know about God, I don't know what will. Every time I read this passage and I get to that part where Hagar says, you are the God who sees me. You are Elroy. I get emotional. Um, because, you know, in our, even in our context, we know it's only the important people who get to be seen. It's only the successful people and the powerful people and the gifted people who get to be platformed. And yet here in Genesis 16, we see a God who dignifies and honors those whom society has discarded. You know, uh, I was joking around with someone that we could have titled this series the story of Abraham and Moses because almost, you know, all the names we've looked at kind of have shown up in the stories of these two men. And especially with someone like Abraham, you know, who's often hailed as the father of our faith, we kind of see him as one of the heroes of Scripture. Um, you know, this guy who, who was so faithful to God, he was willing to give up his own son, I think we often forget that Abraham, at the end of the day, was still just a man. A broken man at that. A man who was far from perfect. And we see all of his flaws on full display here in Genesis 16. God didn't bless the nations because of Abraham. He blessed the nations in spite of Abraham. Right? And I'm, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this story. But if not, let me just give you a little bit of background. Back in Genesis 12... God calls Abram to leave his home, to go to a foreign place with nothing but a promise that he's going to bless the entire world through his descendants. Okay, now this is a kind of a crazy promise because Abram and his wife Sarai, they're super old, right? And they don't have any children. And so, you know, it, it seems strange that God would promise to bless the world through his descendants. And yet, you know, they believe him. Well, fast forward over a decade, still no children. And at this point, Sarai is like, look, we're not getting any younger. Um, you know, we don't have any children. We need to take matters into our own hands. So she tells Abram to go sleep with her slave, Hagar. It says Abram agrees. 
Surprise, surprise, right? Does Abram agrees? And he's like, okay, uh, I'll do this. Hagar conceives. And now we have a really interesting situation here in Genesis 16 because Hagar is still technically a slave, um, but she also has this power now that she hasn't, she's not used to because she's bearing Abram's son. Right? And so in verse 4, it says, she begins to despise her mistress, Sarai. And the way Sarai responds is so interesting. In verse 5, it says, Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. Okay. Every married person in the room is smirking right now because this is pretty much what marriage is. Okay, messing up and then blaming your spouse for it, okay? Um, this past week, I, I woke up to my son, Jack, who his like, face had blood all over it because he had a bloody nose. And rather than wipe his face, the first thing I did was say, Carol, like, Jack's nose is bleeding, as though it was her fault that his nose was bleeding, right? And then she wakes up, and the first thing she says is, he's dripping all over the bed, Jason, and I'm like, well, you move the tissue box to the bathroom, right? And this whole time, Jack is still bleeding, okay? <laughs> like, we're just, and we're just blaming each other, okay? Um, this is basically what's happening in Genesis 16, right? It's the Garden of Eden all over again, okay? Adam and Eve, they think they know better than God. They take matters into their own hands. And then when confronted with their mistakes, Adam says, the woman made me do it. The woman says, the serpent made me do it. Everyone who should take responsibility for their actions is blaming everyone else. And you and I know that whenever people are unwilling to take responsibility for their actions and choices, there's always collateral damage. And we also know that usually the people who suffer the most are those who don't have the power to do anything about it. When parents don't take responsibility for their actions and choices, who suffers? It's not the parents. It's the children. When leaders and pastors don't take responsibility for their actions and choices, who suffers? It's the people entrusted to their care. All Hagar did was do exactly what she was told. She had no choice. She was a slave. And yet when everything went to hell, the people who should have taken responsibility had no problem making her the scapegoat and throwing her away. Listen to what Abram says. He says, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. And that's exactly what Sarai does. It says, Sarai mistreated Hagar. And that's a really tame translation because what it should say is, Sarai beat Hagar. You want to talk about someone who got the short end of the stick in every possible way. Hagar is already a slave. She has no rights. She's someone's property. And if that's not bad enough now, because the only two people who have the power to do anything about her situation still can only think about themselves, she's left alone and abandoned in the desert, pretty much just waiting to die. She's forgotten. She's discarded. She's invisible. Now let me ask you, have you ever felt invisible? Have you ever felt over, overlooked? Have you ever felt forgotten? 
Have you ever been the collateral damage of someone else's poor actions and choices? And I'm going to guess for many of us, the answer is yes. I know that there are many of us sitting here in this room who are holding unthinkable trauma in our bodies. Trauma from our parents, trauma from past relationships, trauma from the church, trauma we may not even know we're carrying. And the thing about trauma that makes it so devastating is that there are often two traumas that happen, right? The trauma of being mistreated or abused, and then the double trauma of being ignored and minimized when you finally have the courage to share that trauma with someone else, right? This is why so many people have such a hard time sharing their sexual abuse stories and spiritual abuse stories with anyone because they've already been traumatized once. They don't want to be traumatized twice, right? When they finally get the courage to confide in someone and what they hear is, well, that's life or that's just how people are or the worst one is you just need to forgive and move on. Nothing will make a person feel more invisible and unseen than another person who minimizes and dismisses their trauma. Nothing. Because at the end of the day, there is no greater human desire than the desire to be seen. To be seen is to be loved. To be seen is to be validated and affirmed and understood. I talk to a lot of parents. I talk to a lot of spouses who tell me, I don't ask my husband or my wife for much. I just want them to acknowledge me once in a while. I just want them to see what I do. I just want them, want them to see the sacrifices that I make. We all just want to be seen. You know, there are, are two reasons why this particular name resonates with me so deeply. Number one, I'm an Enneagram 9, okay? Um, if you don't know what the Enneagram is, you should probably study it because I talk about it all the time, okay? It's a personality assessment tool, essentially, where you get a number from 1 through 9, and, um, you know, every number um, in the Enneagram kind of has a core need, right? So for an Enneag if you're an Enneagram type 1, your core need is to be good. If you're a seven, your core need is to be free. If you're a six, your core need is to feel supported. But if you're a nine, your core need is to be seen. Is to be seen. I actually have a sweater that says seen on it so that when I look in the mirror, I'm like, Jason, you are seen, okay? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, because the nine, we're, we're called the peacemaker, we actually like constantly move through life suppressing what we feel, suppressing our opinions, suppressing what we want for the sake of the other person, right? In order to keep the peace, to minimize conflict, because we hate confrontation, we hate feeling uncomfortable, we hate when there's a disturbance in the force. And so at some point, you move through life enough like this, and you start to feel like your presence doesn't matter. You know, and the people around you just assume that you're okay with everything, that whatever they decide is going to be fine with you, and over and over this happens and you start to feel unseen and you start to feel invisible. Well, you add to this the fact that I'm an Asian American, living in a world where uh, Asian Americans are often uh, seen as an afterthought or as an add-on to conversations around race and culture. You know, many of us in this room grew up embracing the model minority myth, right? Believing that the best thing we could do for ourselves and for our families was to be quiet, to put our heads down, to work hard, and never rock the boat. We thought the only way we could survive was to be invisible. 
right? This is how we were, this is what our parents taught us. Just don't rock the boat. Don't do anything to stand out. Just put your head down and live life and work hard. Now, what's really interesting is that in recent years, we've actually seen more Asians in the media, right? We've seen them on TV and movies. We see Korean dramas on Netflix. We've seen the meteoric rise of groups like Blackpink and BTS. And, and at some point, it felt awesome because it felt like the world was finally starting to see us. And then Atlanta happened. And then our companies, our institutions, and our churches were silent. And you know that feeling when you think everyone sees you, but you actually realize that nobody sees you? You actually, you actually feel even more invisible and even more overlooked than you did before. And so for me, like, like reading this over and over again has meant so much to me. You know, because sometimes, even in this role, where every week, you know, in some sense, like, you do feel seen, but in other ways, you feel completely unseen and invisible. And one of my favorite books is the book The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It's the story of a wide-eyed, college-educated, young black man from the South who, who has all these big hopes and dreams and then slowly becomes disillusioned throughout his life because he realizes that no matter where he goes, no matter what he does, no matter what he accomplishes, no matter who he associates with, at the end of the day, all people see is that he's a black man and thus he's invisible. And what highlights his invisibility throughout the book is that he remains nameless from beginning to end. We never learn his name. And this is why Genesis 16 is so powerful. And when the angel of the Lord comes to Hagar in the desert, this is why it's so powerful that the angel of the Lord calls her by name. He says, Hagar, where are you going? Where are you coming from? to be called by name. Hagar isn't even looking for God, and yet God sees her and calls her by name. Now, what happens next is interesting. Hagar says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, and God says, I want you to go back to your mistress and submit to her. Hard stop, okay? I'm going to be honest. This is the most challenging part of this passage to preach, and, and you can probably see how a lot of churches have misused and weaponized this passage to get people to walk back into toxic and abusive situations that they should not be in, right? Because, I mean, that's what it says. It says that God tells Sarai to go back to her mistress and submit to her. Okay, I'm sure for many of us, just reading that part can be triggering, okay? And there's a lot of scholarly debate around this section of the story, and I, I'm going to say straight up, I'm still personally wrestling with this. Um, but let me offer a thought that might be helpful. The first thing I think we need to recognize here is that this is a completely different world than the world we're living in now. If you think we're living in a patriarchal world right now, this is an extremely patriarchal culture where women, especially slaves, have zero power, rights, or protection apart from their husbands or their masters. Zero. This is why to be a widow was essentially a death sentence. And this is why all throughout the Bible there's such a huge emphasis on caring for the widow and the orphan. Right? So, so in this moment, we have to understand that for Hagar, there are only two options. To go back 
or to die alone in the wilderness, now with the son she's carrying in her womb. And, and, and I know that for some of us, you read this and you're like, you know what, I'd rather die than go back. I'd rather die. And, and I think for, us, for a moment, I think as Americans, we really do have to examine our privilege. Because you and I, when we experience situations like this, we have choices. Not Hagar. Not women in that time. They did not have a choice. And I think it's really important here that God doesn't just say, go back. He says, I will increase your descendants so much that they are too numerous to count. He sends Hagar back with the same promise given to Abram. It's an unthinkable promise to give to a woman in those times, let alone a slave. And yet God gives that promise to Hagar. God doesn't say it's going to be easy. He doesn't say you're going to go back and they're going to welcome you with open arms. He doesn't say they're going to pay for what they did to you. All he gives her is the assurance that he sees her. That he sees her and for someone who has never felt seen in her entire life that's enough that's enough that's all she needs to choose survival you know i think our, our theology especially here in the west can be way too triumphalist sometimes you know you you go to church and everyone's talking about being victorious and thriving and flourishing and living your best life and i actually don't think we have a robust enough theology around just simply surviving like we want our lives to be interesting and noteworthy and these are great desires we are meaning making machines we want to matter and this is how we were created this is great but friends survival is also a holy calling just surviving you know i struggle to even prepare uh, this message this week because you know, I realize that, like, I'm speaking to a room full of Angelinos, who, many of whom have come here with a lot of ambitions, and, and you know, you want your life to, to have meaning and be exciting, and again, this is great. But it, I, I felt so, like, I felt this, like, tension, because right now on the other side of the world, there are people literally not being able to have bread and water. There are people in Ukraine fearing for their lives, you know, they're not fearing what kind of blankets they should get for their children. They're, they're fearing, like, if their children are going to survive to see another day. We have to understand that even survival is a holy calling. You don't have to be changing the world every day to be in the will of God. And maybe that's not what you want to hear, but depending on the season of life you're in, uh, I hope that that can be comforting and freeing for some of us. I think about the parents who are stuck at home 24-7, wiping butts and changing diapers, feeling like their life is on hold. I think about the people who go into work on Monday morning, sitting at a desk for eight hours, feeling like there's, no, there's nothing to look forward to because they're doing menial tasks. I think about the people who look at their lives and everything just feels incredibly ordinary. And if this story tells us anything, it's that our lives don't have to be exciting all the time to have meaning. There's something beautiful and sacred, and dare I say, even blessed, about simply surviving. Survival isn't always sexy, but it's gutsy. It takes courage, 
and it takes so much faith. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to better our situations or advocate for change, but what it does mean is that our lives aren't dependent on things constantly and always changing for the better, but rather in the assurance that God is with us even when they don't. And you'd be surprised how much a person's experience of life can change simply by knowing that God sees them that somebody sees them. You know, when I was growing up, we had something called bring your parent to school day, right? Uh, where one of your parents or a family member would come and follow you around for a couple hours um, during class and it would culminate into this big luncheon and they would get like uh, certain grades together. So like the fourth and fifth graders, they would get all the classrooms together and we would all have lunch with our parents or our guardians and you know, the principal would come up, and I really hope they don't do this in schools anymore, but the, the principal would come up, and they would call each student's name, right? And uh, whoever was with that student would stand up, raise their hand, and say, here, and everyone would applaud. You know, and it had good intentions, right? Because the, the whole purpose was to recognize the guardians and to recognize the parents who were a part of their life. Well, I had a friend uh, growing up who lost both his parents at a young age. And he was raised by his grandmother who had to work all day so she could never make it to bring your parent to school day. Okay, she could never make it. And I remember one particular year, I think I was in either the fourth or fifth grade, that classmate was the only student out of our three classrooms who didn't have anyone come for him. So all day long, he's watching his friends walk around with their parents to recess, to snack in class, and he's just walking around alone. And everything culminates to this lunch, and we're all sitting there, and I still remember this, we're all sitting there, principal walks up, she's completely oblivious, and, and she starts calling out the names, right? And she starts calling out the names of the students, parents standing up, raise their hand, everyone applauding. And she gets to this student, calls the student's name, and bless her heart, Mrs. Keys, someone who I will never forget, and if you are a teacher, bless your heart for what you do. Um, the principal calls a student's name, and without hesitation, Mrs. Keyes stands up and says, here. And I remember in that moment being like, not quite understanding how profound that moment must have been for that student, but I guarantee you, my friend never forgot it. To be seen is such a gift. And there are things that we do subtly, and there are things that we incorporate into our daily lives that either make people feel incredibly seen or incredibly unseen. There are things that married people say on a whim all the time that make single people feel invisible. There are things that parents say all the time, not even thinking, sometimes with good intentions, that make people who don't have kids or can't have kids feel invisible. Let me be the first to apologize if from this pulpit I've ever said something, and I probably will if I have not yet done so, if I ever say something that minimizes or overlooks your experience, everyone deserves to be seen. You know, I, I criticize social media a lot, and I obviously have a lot of reservations about it, but when you scroll through people's posts and their stories, you realize that everyone at the end of the day just wants to be seen. They just want to be seen. And this is not bad. 
right? It's a part of what it means to be human. It's actually a good desire. We all want to be validated and affirmed. The Bible said we were created for love, to love and to be loved. I look at my kids and every day they're saying, Daddy, Mommy, look at me, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I made. Look at what I did. And this is what social media is. It's basically everyone in the world saying, look at me, look at me. Now, the paradox of it and the paradox of our culture is that we live in a world where everyone wants to be seen, and yet at the same time, everyone is utterly terrified of truly being seen. Right? Everyone wants to be seen. Everyone wants people to notice them. But at the same time, they're utterly terrified of truly being seen for who they are. I want you to notice me, but I'm not sure you'll actually like the real me. So I'm going to create a version of me or I'm going to become someone that I'm not so that maybe you will notice me. You know, my daughter, Avery, she's six years old and she's already looking in the mirror. You know, Carol and I see her looking in the mirror and she's like, Mommy, Daddy, do I look Okay. And it's this heartbreak, it's, it breaks my heart because it's this cultural messaging that says, that trains our kids from a young age that says you have to look a certain way, you have to achieve certain things, you have to accomplish certain things in order for anyone to pay attention to you. And it's a lose-lose situation because you can do all these things and finally get to a place where everyone does notice you, but now you have to expend so much energy being someone you're not in order to keep their attention. Right? Or conversely, you get to a place where nobody notices you and you start believing you're not worthy of attention. Both places are extremely lonely places to be. But this is why the story of Hagar is so powerful. Here she is, abandoned in the wilderness, having been abused and mistreated by those responsible for her, sitting there with nothing left to hide, with no image to protect or preserve, and it's precisely in that moment that God sees her. He sees her in her most vulnerable, naked state. It's often when we feel most unworthy to be seen that God sees us. You know, when you think about the ministry of Jesus, what you'll see over and over again is that the gospel writers make a huge point of this, is that before Jesus heals anyone, before he performs a miracle, before he calls people to be his disciples, he always sees them first. In Luke 13, Jesus heals a woman who's been crippled for 18 years, who's been ostracized by her friends and family, and it says, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. In John 5, 6, Jesus heals a lame man who's been sick for 38 years, who can't get into the pool because he's lame, and the first thing it says is that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Jesus is showing us that you can't truly love someone unless you see them first, because to see someone is to validate their personhood. You know, a few years ago, I met a woman who does a lot of incredible work on Skid Row, and she was taking me around that area, and she said, you know, for a lot of the people who live here, um, you know, as, as thankful as they are when people bring them food and clothes and hygiene kits, as grateful as they are, what they want more than anything else is for someone to acknowledge them as a human being. She said, I love 
that organizations and nonprofits and churches drop stuff off all the time. We're so grateful for it. But she says, sometimes I wish people who would drop things off would look at least one person in the eye. To just stop and see someone. To be seen is to be loved. Jesus always saw people before he healed them. And the people he saw, the people who got his attention, were always the rejected and the vulnerable. In John's account of the crucifixion, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's undoubtedly in pain, and he's undoubtedly in excruciating pain and agony. And in John 19, 26, we get an interesting detail. It says, when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. Jesus is literally suffocating to death, and yet somehow his eyes, his attention is drawn to his mother, to this woman who is invisible, to this woman he knows will be completely without protection once he dies. And so in his final act on earth, he makes sure she's taken care of. He makes sure she knows that she's seen. This is who Jesus is. He is the embodiment of El Roy, the one who sees us when we're at our lowest. If today you're sitting here and you feel invisible and alone, I know that in a city like LA and in a church like ours where it's so easy to kind of come in and just fly under the radar, if you're sitting here and you feel forgotten, I want you to know that God sees you. He sees what you're holding. He sees your anxiety. He sees what others can't see behind the mask and the smile that we put on every week. He knows. He knows how hard it is to, be, to, to move on after the miscarriage. He knows how much you still miss your parents. He knows. He sees. And the more we, like Hagar, begin to see the one who sees us, the more we're able to see others the way God sees them. You know, right now, the challenge of our day is we try to love people without seeing them. Right? We try to care about people we don't know. Everything is on social media. Everything is a social media infographic. And so people are just numbers. They're just data. And we don't know how to see people before loving them. And at the end of the day, that's just virtue signaling, right? You cannot love someone if you do not see them first. So the big question I want to close with is today, and I hope this would be an invitation for all of us. Who do you see? Who do you notice? There are so many people we walk by every day in our classes, in our workplaces, people whose stories we click by or, or scroll through, people who sit next to us in church or in our community group who desperately are longing to be seen. So many people carrying unimaginable grief and trauma, wondering if someone, if anyone will just stop and pay attention for just a moment. So many people who are feeling unloved and discarded and forgotten, do you see them? because God sees them. And my hope and prayer 
is that the Holy Spirit will begin to open our eyes to see who God sees, to see what God sees, to see ourselves and others as created in His image, precious in His sight, and worthy of love. May we all begin to see the one who sees us. Let's pray. Lord, um, I know that uh, this particular name hits home for so many of us here in L.A., where sometimes it, does, it just feels like all of us are, are performing all the time. We're performing to be someone, to accomplish something, to do, uh, to do something that will give us meaning, all so that someone will notice us. All so that we can feel seen. But God, we also recognize that sometimes in the process uh, of pursuing that, we end up feeling more unseen and more invisible. These are like this desire is, is, is a good desire, but, but in our effort to be seen, we often end up becoming something we're not. We end up hiding behind an image or a mask. And in the end, we feel even more overlooked and even more forgotten. But God, we thank you that we can be reminded of the good news this morning. That you see us for who we really are. That you see us in our most naked, vulnerable state. And you love us deeply. You loved us enough to give your own life for us. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are holding um, some, some unimaginable trauma, who are grieving, but grieving silently and alone, you know, because they don't want to ruin the vibe or they don't, um, you know, they don't want to um, bring what they're feeling out into the open. But God, I pray that they would know in this moment that you see them that you know what they're holding, that you know what they're struggling with, you know their deepest anxieties and sadness, you see it all. Lord, may we behold the one who sees us this morning. May we leave this place knowing that we have a God who sees us, that we don't have to do something or be someone we're not in order to be seen. We're already seen. We're already loved. We're already validated and accepted. May we rejoice in that fact. Thank you, Lord, for this word. We give our lives and our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.